Hello, my name's Anna Ridley and this is the Penguin Podcast. You might have noticed that the podcast has been quite quiet recently. Really quiet. In fact, deathly, deathly quiet for the last year. Well, that's all about to change. From now on, we're going to be bringing you monthly episodes based around a theme. But we'll also be bringing you extra episodes, bonuses, like this one that you're listening to right now with stories or interviews or talks or extracts from audiobooks we thought you might like. So, to start things off, here's a quick dispatch from Penguin's Alan Trotter. This is a quick story about corporate retreats. The sort of thing where big companies hustle their employees out to a hotel for the weekend and let them drink and make some bad decisions in the hopes that in amongst all the fun, they'll come up with some creative ideas that will ultimately help the business. It's a story of two of these retreats. One that didn't happen, though we might well wish that it had. And one that did happen, though we might wish that it hadn't. To tell it, we spoke to two of our authors, Stephen Johnson. My name is uh, Stephen Johnson, and I'm the author of Where Good Ideas Come From, The Natural History of Innovation. We spoke to in the cafe of his hotel when he was visiting town recently. And John Lanchester. I'm John Lanchester, and I'm the author most recently of Whoops, Why Everybody Owes Everybody and Nobody Can Pay. But the story starts with a memo called the Phoenix Memo. Here's Stephen Johnson. A, a field agent in the FBI in Arizona had noticed this pattern of uh, kind of suspicious flight school attendees who uh, were enrolling in these flight schools and seemed to maybe have some connection to terrorist organizations. And he sent a memo in July of 2001 to the headquarters at the FBI saying, hey, we should go back and, and, and look into this because it seems to me that I've detected something here that is a little suspicious. And so we should go and look at all the visa applications for people coming from, you know, kind of countries that have terrorist associations with them and, and look and see if there are any people com- coming specifically to enroll in flight schools. The memo was completely ignored. Um, it was kind of dismissed as a hunch, uh, which in fact it was. After the events of 9-11, the, the memo came to light and the FBI directors were very clear to say, even if we had acted on this memo, um, it wouldn't have stopped 9-11. And they were right. The memo was just the expression of a hunch, a very prescient hunch it would turn out two months later, on September the 11th. But at the time, the FBI had little reason to pay attention to it above any other hunch being sent to headquarters by their agents. And even if they had, it was a hunch that wouldn't have led them anywhere. Not by itself, anyway. The problem is that the memo itself was only part of the story and that a few weeks later, in August, there was the case of what came to be known as the 20th hijacker, Musawi, who was the guy who was taking flight school lessons to learn how to fly a 747, but wasn't interested in learning how to land the 747, which is always a telltale sign that something is wrong. He'd been arrested, and the field agents in Minneapolis were desperately trying to get a search warrant to, uh, to look at his laptop. And his laptop did subsequently turn out to contain information that would have directly linked the authorities to the plot um, and to a number of the other hijackers and could theoretically have been enough to disrupt the plot. The FBI folks in Minneapolis got denied the request for a search warrant and the laptop was not analyzed until after 9-11. 
And so in, in that case, you had really these two kind of organizational hunches, each of which on its own was not enough to turn into a real coherent, fully fledged idea. But when you put them together, there was certainly enough support based on the Phoenix memo to justify looking at this guy's laptop if you put those two ideas together. But the organizational culture the, and literally the information network of the FBI was designed in such a way that actually it, it was designed to keep kind of barriers between ideas and hunches, not allow them to kind of connect in new and surprising ways. Um, and so in some sense the ideas were right, but the environment was set up in such a way that they were kind of doomed to failure because they were doomed to stay kind of isolated hunches. A lot of Stephen's book is about the environments that help turn hunches into something more substantial. Typically, they're the sorts of environments that encourage interaction between people and between their ideas. The sort of environment that the Minnesotan FBI agents wanting to search a laptop and the Arizonan agent worried about flight school attendees lacked. It's the sort of problem that the corporate retreat is meant to address, but for him, they're no use at all. Or very little, anyway. I, I think it actually probably has some value in, you know, morale, right? It is good, just in terms of getting along to people, you often will kind of forge kind of emotional connections when you're off in the country somewhere, you know, drinking too much and having a good time. Um, but in terms of ideas, the idea that, you know, once a year there's creativity day where we go off in the country and we do brainstorming and trust falls and things like that, you know, um, I, I think is, is, is unlikely to work very well. In part because for really good, sustainable, um, kind of viable ideas to come out of those sessions, the, the hunches and the fragments of an idea that need to collide have to be have to be kind of in sync with each other, right? You have, when you sit down for that one big brainstorming session, you, you have to have your half of the idea, and the other person across the table has to have their half of the idea at, at that same point. And the odds of kind of coordinating, just temporally coordinating your ideas uh, so that they're in the same room together at the same time is, is pretty slim. So while an FBI corporate retreat might have done some good, a lot of good actually, the odds were always against it. Yeah, if they had, had if they had held in you know late August after the 20th hijacker is is arrested without the search warrant being approved, if they had said, okay, all the field agents from around the country, we're going to gather together and have a brainstorming session on potential threats that might face this country from terrorist organizations, and in that session there are thousands of field agents, right? And in that session in one room with 20 people sitting around, there happened to be Ken Williams from the, the Phoenix Memo from Arizona and the Minneapolis uh, agents riffing on potential ways that Al-Qaeda might attack this country. In fact, they probably would have come up with the idea of hijackers taking over planes and crashing them into buildings. And in fact, with an even more important idea that this plot might be actually in the works and you know, kind of imminent. And the world might have changed. In fact, in his book, Where Good Ideas Come From, Stephen writes, no doubt it would have been the first corporate retreat on record that actually changed the fate of world history. The next part of the story takes place in the world of finance. Here's John Lanchester. One of the odd things about exotic 
financial products and new trends in banking is that they are actually invented. You know, one thinks of banking as something that's somehow there, but in fact, you know, people sit around cooking up these um, fancy and esoteric new things, a bit like mad scientists in a lab. One esoteric financial instrument created by the banks, one which you've probably heard of, it's been big news in the past couple of years, is the credit default swap, or CDS. Essentially, a credit default swap is a way of reducing the risk of lending. You know, say I've lent you a hundred grand and you're paying me back a grand a month. And then what happens is that JP Morgan invents the credit default swap and comes up and he says, you know that grand a month you're being paid back? How about you insure the risk of the default? So uh, you insure away the risk that you might not get it. So say, yeah, what the hell? Um, so I've lent you a hundred grand I'm getting a grand a month in payments and I'm paying 50 quid to insure the risk away. And then the point at which that gets dangerous is, hang on a minute, that means I've just lent money and I'm getting a return on it for no risk. I've just engineered away the risk. And the thing about that is from being a, a thing designed to be safe and to reduce risk, it immediately becomes incredibly risky because the thought planted in my head is that I can just keep lending more and more and more and just getting credit default swap insurance on all of it. So basically I can crank up my leverage, the amount I'm lending, by having someone write credit default swaps for everything. And I can gear up to a whole new level and that basically is what happened to the global financial system. If removing risk from the equation seems like a good thing to be doing, then you should know that the banks felt the same way. According to John, CDSs were one of many instruments intended to do just that. Well, the thing is, credit default swaps link with a lot of other things in new inventions in finance, like securitization, which is selling on a loan. And um, they all have a, a lot of these things have a common theme of taking away the consequence of what you've done. And the thing about you know, securitization is I lend you money, then I sell your debt to someone else, which means I don't care whether you can pay. I'm not holding your debt anymore. Um, and credit default swap, again, I lend you money, and then I insure away the risk that you won't pay. Again, I don't care whether you can pay or not. People thought that these were brilliant new techniques for reducing the levels of risk, and actually it turned out that they were um, brilliant new techniques for magnifying the risks, first thing, and secondly, spreading them. Um, because the, this, the paper, the debt, was um, spread around and insured and cross-insured and resold and chopped up into parcels of other debt and sold on again. And you had credit default swaps on credit default swaps, in other words, insurance on insurance, which again was passed back and forward and sold and resold. So when things went wrong in one place, just very straightforwardly, nobody knew who else was at risk and nobody knew the scale of their exposure. And then to make it much, 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 much worse, at the centre of all this business, it turned out that one company, AIG, American Insurance Group, had written basically all the credit default swaps. In the final analysis, AIG had insured everything in this one particular category of debt that went bad to do with American subprime mortgages. And uh, AIG had, it turned out, to everyone's horror, had bet not just itself, but had essentially bet the entire banking system on this one category 
of dead. It's, it's as if every single person in your street had insured all their house and property and, you know, stuff with one firm. And then, you know, the gas main blows up and trashes everything in your street and everyone turns up simultaneously to collect. So that's what happened with credit default swaps. An instrument designed to reduce risk that would ultimately help bring down banks and almost destroy the world's financial system. And how were they invented? And uh, in this instance, it was a, the team at JP Morgan, the American investment bank, who uh, were, were away for basically a, like a corporate away weekend in Boca Raton in Florida in January 1994. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, they did, you know, all the usual things at those weekends. Um, do so, you know, they trashed the jet ski, they sort of trashed somebody's room, you know, they put all the drinks on someone else's barbell, bar all the stuff that everybody does. And also, you know, accidentally invented this thing which a uh, decade and a half later blew up the global financial system. So that's a story about two corporate retreats, only one of which happened. John Lanchester is the author of Whoops, Why Everyone Knows Everyone and No One Can Pay, and Stephen Johnson is the author of Where Good Ideas Come From, a book all about innovation. Innovation, which is a good thing, normally. One of the jokes about this book is the one space we don't need more innovation is the financial services business, right? You know, like, that, that was innovation that nearly brought the entire economy down. That was Alan Trotter speaking to John Lanchester and Stephen Johnson. The music was by Welcome Wizard and Multi Pharos. You can find out more about the books at thepenguinpodcast.blogs.com. Both John and Stephen are published by our Alan Lane imprint, which is on Twitter now. It hasn't been for long. And you can find us at at Alan Lane Books. There's also an all-purpose Penguin Twitter account. You can follow at Penguin Books. And that's it. Next week, there'll be another bonus episode, a choose-your-own-adventure story read by Joe Dunthorne. Thanks for listening.